Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Well, I'd like to take an opportunity to interrupt in this scripture and science class as we're going through. We've just done three episodes on evolution. The first episode, our teacher, Will Barlow, covered the basics, and I entitled that episode, What is Evolution? And in our second episode on evolution, he went over some biblical problems with evolution from the various Christian systems of thought, whether young earth creationism, old earth creationism, or just taking it from an allegorical approach. And then in our last episode, he went over a number of scientific problems with evolution. It talked about mutations and the Cambrian explosion. And in talking to Will, we decided to interview an actual Christian evolutionist because neither of us find ourselves convinced enough of the theory of evolution to believe in it, and we didn't want to misrepresent what Christian evolutionists believe, so we invited on Sam, who is a biologist, has degrees from Cornell and Harvard, and currently works in the field of biology, and he knows all about genetics, and we figured he'd be a good person to talk to. Unfortunately, I was sick last week and was unable to participate in that conversation, but uh, really enjoyed listening to Will and Sam talk, and that episode is not on this podcast. You have to go to YouTube to get that episode if you're interested in it. The whole thing's there, totally raw, unedited, for your viewing pleasure if you are so inclined to hear what he has to say. I figured we'd just leave it there. And move on to our next episode, which Will is going to cover the subject of geology. But in seeing the various comments coming in, it became clear to me that I wasn't getting my point across and that people were moved more to comment on the titles of the episodes without listening or watching, in the case of the last one where Will interviewed Sam. So, I figured this would be a good point to interject and say some things. So that's what I'm going to do today. Here now is episode 472, Why I Still Don't Believe in Evolution. Well, let's get started. I wanted to first begin by reading out some of the comments made by people who listened to the previous episodes and watch the YouTube video just to give you a sense of my motivation for covering this topic today. Uh, One of those comments was, quote, how can anybody be an evolutionist and a Christian at the same time? That is simply an oxymoron and wrongheaded teaching. You are either in or out. You cannot be in between. Vain philosophy has overtaken someone's Christian understanding. Another comment was, unbelievable that I would discover the promotion of such a doctrine on a monotheist Unitarian website or Facebook page. Those comments came in on the episode that Will gave called, What is Evolution? And I think people were thinking, mistakenly thinking, that uh, as a podcast, we were actually promoting believing in evolution. Uh, We were just laying out what it is we're talking about. 
or rather Will was just laying out what he's talking about. And then in the next two episodes, he covered the problems with it. But the fact that people got so triggered, to use a modern term for it, just by even considering this. Look, as a podcast, we consider everything. Uh, I just had a, a comment on somebody who posted a non-devil position. I, I've never honestly even considered the non-devil position because there are just so many verses on the subject. But you know what? I'm willing to consider it. I'm willing to consider it, even though my initial reaction is to guffaw and say, how could anyone believe that? Well, there are good-hearted, honest, Bible-believing Christian folks that do. So stay tuned. We may get into that. Same thing with evolution. Same thing with the age of the earth. A lot of these things that there's not just one position. So as a podcast, what we do here is we believe the truth has nothing to fear, and we believe that we should look into things and judge them on their own merits, not on who believes in them, that's the genetic fallacy, or other extraneous non-reasons to believe in that idea. Now, I called the YouTube episode, Can Christians Believe in Evolution? And so someone commented in, that is like asking, can an atheist be a Christian simultaneously? What harmony does Plato have with Jesus? How does darkness mix with light? Another person said, no. That was their whole comment. Again, the title was, Can Christians Believe in Evolution? Another person said, hard no. Another person commented in saying, so sad this young man has been conditioned to believe that it is okay to worship his own mind instead of worshiping Yahweh with all his mind. This was predicted to happen in these latter days. And to be honest, I'm quite amazed at these comments and the just uncharitable attitude that people are displaying here. Now, to be clear, I'm not asking you to believe in evolution. Neither is Will. I honestly don't see enough evidence personally to believe in evolution. But these kinds of comments are just closed-minded. The tagline I say, once again, at the end of every episode is the truth has nothing to fear. Do you believe that? If there's solid biblical, scientific, logical, or historical evidence to believe in evolution, you should consider it, just like anything else you believe to be true. Now, Will has labored to make room for honest-hearted Christians who disagree on science issues and to have fellowship with one another. If he said it once, he said it a hundred times. Your beliefs about science do not affect your salvation. Look, your salvation is all bound up with believing in the gospel and responding to it. It's not based on how you interpret the age of the earth, uh, whether or not humans descended from a common ancestor with apes, or any of these other things. Obviously, these are also important. They're interesting. They have a bearing on your life. I don't doubt that. But it's not salvational. The gospel is salvational. It's okay to have a range of views in your church on this stuff. Scientific issues are complicated, difficult, fraught with misinformation, and overconfident claims of certainty on both sides, or sometimes more than two sides. That's why it's so valuable to have somebody like Sam on a YouTube interview. But here's the thing. Those of you who don't believe in evolution won't even listen to it. Why? Because I called it, can Christians believe in evolution? And you just dismiss that out of hand. Well, that's seriously problematic. And that's, that's my concern here. Because newsflash, there are many Christians who do believe in evolution. And there have been for more than a century. Now, you may think they're wrong in how they put everything together. I think they're wrong in how they put everything together, for the record. But aren't you at least curious how they hold scripture and science together? Do you even know what they think? 
This goes back to another point about the scripture and science class, which is really something Will has kept in the forefront, and that is the whole topic of evangelism. If our churches and home groups insist on a particular view of the age of the earth or evolution, and on that basis push away science-minded people, how are we ever going to reach them? Don't you think God wants engineers and physicists and biologists and chemists and so on and so forth in his kingdom? Obviously, you don't want to compromise what you believe. I'm not asking you to do that. But can you welcome people into your group, into your fellowship, into your church, and challenge them with the gospel? Can you do that? Or or do they have to sign on to your view of science too? Do we expect them to accept the gap theory or, or young earth creationism before they're allowed to sit through a sermon? Now, this largely comes down to preachers. I realize that. How do you present your scientific convictions in your sermons. And look, I am a preacher. I preach regularly. And I have taught quite a few others who are now currently pastors in churches around the United States, even actually in other countries as well. And the the question is, you as a preacher, I know you have a scientific speculation, theory, maybe it's well thought, maybe it's just what you received, whatever. I do too. I've got opinions on all kinds of things. But the question is, When you preach, are you just going to say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and claim that your theory about how to put together science in the Bible is covered under that little tagline there? I mean, look, it does sound great. The Bible says it, I believe it, that that sounds great. To those who already believe in the Bible, but to outsiders, it just sounds like you're a narrow-minded and ignorant person. Now, in the end, it's true, and I want to be careful here, I don't want to be misunderstood. It is true that God inspired Scripture, and therefore it has authority. It is true. I'm talking about the question of how can you reach people? How can you reach people? Somebody comes into your church, and you're preaching on Genesis 1. And let's say you're a young earth creationist. Do you preach in such a way that you ridicule old earth believers, whether Christians or not? Or do you present your understanding and say, hey, look, I, based on my research into the Bible and science and and having studied the various claims of the age of the earth that it's old, I find myself unconvinced, although I do know that well-intentioned brothers and sisters have different views on this, but I still, myself, don't find those convincing. That's fine. Be honest. I'm just saying don't be a jerk to people who believe differently than you on these second, really tertiary matters. This is not really how to follow Christ. This is sort of like how you see the big picture fitting together. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into some reasons because I I do really want to cover some of my own thinking on evolution here. And it uh, it is an interesting subject and it's something that I've looked into a little bit and I have some thoughts about. First of all, my first reason why I don't find evolution as a theory convincing is that there seems to be a real lack of evidence for evolution. And that's really what I always listen for when I hear somebody talking like a Richard Dawkins or our interview with Sam, not Sam Harris, by the way, a different Sam. And I'm always listening for the reasons. And I remember the reasons I was given in school. They were the peppered moths and tree bark and the idea that because of the Industrial Revolution, the birds were more easily able to peck out the white-colored moths over the dark-colored moths, and, you know, that this is evidence of evolution. Of course, after they cleaned up the pollution, then the population went back to normal. 
to me, that's that's not evolution. That's just variation within a species, and some of them are surviving better than others. Or I also remember Heckel's embryonic recapitulation drawings. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, consider yourself blessed. But it was these old wood carvings that were in my textbook, and they showed the maturation of all these different animals, from like a fish to a turtle to a human. And they made it look like at each stage, they went through the same shapes. You know, it did seem very convincing. Like, wow, look, the human being retraces its evolutionary past in the womb. Well, guess what? Once we got good enough technology to see inside the womb, we discovered that these drawings were all frauds. They were this guy trying to make his beliefs, his science, seem more plausible than it really was. This is sort of like over and over what I've seen with the evidence of evolution is that it's, it's sort of like, well, if you look at it this way, then you can see how it works. And, it, and it's more like, honestly, it's more like a dogma. Like, we believe in this tree of life. We believe in this thing called the fossil record, which is obviously an abstract concept that requires all kinds of interpretation to put together uh, different layers from different parts of the world right? So these are interpretations, these are theologies, if you will, of how things work, the tree of life, the fossil record, and so on. And now we're going to look at evidence and try to fit it into that theory. And to me, that's that's just sort of backwards. I'd rather see somebody lay out the evidence and build it up. You know, like I, I respect Charles Darwin in the sense that he did have a theory and he did find evidence and, his, and, and then he developed a theory, right? I, I respect that. But it doesn't seem like that's really what other people are doing. Now, the problem with Darwin, of course, is that he believed cells were really simple building blocks. And you put enough of them together, they make an organ, whatever. Subsequent science has discovered that cells are ridiculously complicated. And so as, as a result, why are we still hanging on to Darwin's theory when we know like the, the presupposition for it, the foundation stone, this assumption of very simple cells is not at all reality once we got the technology to see better. Uh, and I was really listening for Sam to present some evidence. I, I, didn't, I didn't catch it. You know, to be honest, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear it. It sounded like he capitulated to relieve the cognitive dissonance he experienced while taking classes at college. I totally understand that. Um, that's one of the reasons why I want to believe in evolution is because there is cognitive dissonance in standing over against a majority of scientific interpretation. And I'm not saying that Sam doesn't have evidence. Uh, I just I just didn't hear it. So I guess I would like to see or hear good evidence for evolution. Uh, and not just like, hey, here's my dogma and here's some supporting ideas or, or findings. I'd, I'd like to see somebody derive evolution from the evidence. I think that would be much more convincing. Reason number two is the, the problem of first life. And this is something that Will was careful not to get into. And, and that is because the, dif the difficulty of first life is so staggering that evolutionists have siloed the problem to another field. They're just like, you know what, we're not going to deal with that. We're just going to say we are describing how life changes over time once it's already started. Well, that's a clever move. But for me, if, if evolution is has no possibility of getting started, why are we going to spend all this time developing ideas and, and uh, speculations on how it possibly worked 
if we know that it can't work in the starting place of it. You need amino acids to form. Then you need to form them into protein chains. Those protein chains in turn need to somehow on their own, just randomly moving about in some sort of primordial pond scum, turn into a double helix DNA shape. You've got to get it at the same time a cell membrane. You need all those little organelles like mitochondria and ribosomes. You need RNA. You need random collisions to produce a working, self-replicating cell. This is not just something that's like really unlikely to happen. I don't care if you put all those exact chemicals in a jar and shook it up. You're not going to get a cell that works out of that. It's just That's just not how it works. If you want to learn more about this whole issue of abiogenesis, I would strongly recommend James Tour. He points out that this alleged process that occurred is a dumb process. In other words, it doesn't know what it's working toward. And when it makes a mistake, it doesn't stop, go back, and learn from it, right? It just keeps on going. And one little mistake is generally going to render a cell unviable. So the problem is so bad that evolutionists, and when I say evolutionists, I mean naturalist evolutionists, non-theistic evolutionists, that they have proposed aliens as a source for simple life on Earth. But this is not an answer to the question. This is, again, just sidestepping it. Where did the aliens come from? How did the aliens develop? As soon as you invoke God to start life, you've moved, in my estimation, you moved out of evolution. You're not really an evolutionist anymore. You're a progressive creationist because God's going to do a miracle to start that first cell. And then God's going to supervene over mutations to make sure that the right ones happen at the right time to produce more complex organisms. That's more like progressive creationism than Darwinian evolution, if you ask me. So that's the problem of uh, first life. So again, problem number one, lack of evidence. Problem number two, how are you going to get that first life without God? And if you do have God, then none of it's difficult, because obviously for God, it wouldn't be hard to supervise the process. Problem number three is this whole issue of mutations as a mechanism. And Will got into this in this class, so I'm not going to say much about it. But I will say this, that if mutations, if we define mutations as an error in copying, how does that possibly add information? Mutations, we know, cause sickle cell anemia, Down syndrome, and a whole host of other problems. Also, you need collections of mutations to occur at the right time to produce complex structures whose individual parts serve no advantage to the organism. That's the whole Michael Behe irreducible complexity idea. So it's not as simple as like, oh, we'll just like have a, a, a rogue letter move around in the chromosome. That's not really what we need here. What we need is multiple letters to move in a coordinated way to produce a structure that the, the cell and the organism itself is not controlling. These are random. And anything random really degrades information. It does not produce information. And that's just basic signal theory. Problem number four, and uh, this is something that we didn't get into in previous episodes, is something I've been thinking about a lot. And it's this idea of humans are ill-adapted for survival. Now, I know there's like bazillions of us on the planet what do we have, like 8 billion human beings? So you think, oh, wow, we must be really good at survival. Well, we are, 
because we have technology, we have fire, we have clothes, we have electricity, we have farming technology, right? Like a lot of the reason why we are so good at survival is technological. And even in a pre-industrial age, obviously humans were surviving okay, not nearly as well as we are today, but they survived in, in groups who passed knowledge from previous times on how to do things, how to survive. Uh, this has really been driven home to me by watching the TV show Alone, which is on the History Channel. In, in Alone, they, they take 10 people and put them out in the wilderness somewhere, and they allow them to bring 10 items each. And the goal is for them to survive totally alone. They have cameras, but they record themselves. And there's no, so there's no crew. And they have to survive the longest. Whoever survives the longest wins half a million bucks. And they have 10 things. They have a tarp. They have a knife. They have specialized knowledge about trapping, about hunting, about processing dead animals and eating them. Many of them are experts on what kinds of herbs and mushrooms you can eat. They know that they have to boil their water. Let's think about that first human being. That first human being walks out, how is that human being going to survive? I mean, we are so ill-equipped to survive in nature. Our feet are weak. We don't have fur. You know, if you want to walk around outside, right now it's December when I'm recording this. Of course, I live in New York. If you walk around outside right now and you don't have socks and shoes on, you're going to get frostbite. Our feet are sensitive to cold. They're prone to injury. If you step on a sharp rock, guess what? You get cut. Uh, if a billy goat steps on a sharp rock, he's fine. If a horse does, it, you know, a rabbit, whatever, like the, these other, these animals are just in a class far, I would argue, far above us as far as survival is concerned. Our defective digestive systems can't drink fresh water. Think about that. You can't even drink fresh water without boiling it first. We can't, we can't eat animal meat. After it's been sitting out for a day or two, unless, unless we know to, to process it correctly and smoke it with a fire. But how are you going to know to get a fire when you're the first human or the first group of humans? Many foods are poisonous to us that other animals can eat just fine. We can't eat grass. We can't just eat pine needles or something. You know, like we can't eat leaves. There's lots of things that we can't eat. We can't blend into the environment. Nor can we move quickly through forests without spraining our feeble ankles. If we cut our skin, we're often unable to heal without antibiotics. We cannot hibernate or go without food for very long. And we're these incredibly emotional creatures. We have this innate empathy. We have moral limitations that hamper us from survival strategies that other animals have no problem performing, such as cannibalism. What's more, as humans... We have allegedly not even changed much in the last, whatever, 5,000 or 100,000, whatever the number is, years, so that pre-technological, pre-industrial, pre-literary people survive with the same physical and emotional limitations that we have today. I would even argue that humans are uniquely suited not to survive without technology. And yet we're supposed to be the pinnacle of the evolutionary tree of life that we are at at the very top? Why are we so bad at surviving if evolution's whole goal, if I can even say it that way, I I, I don't think evolution is a being or has intentions, so I shouldn't say it that way. But if the whole result, I will say, of the process of evolution 
is survivability. Why are we so bad at it? Furthermore, think about our young. Animals give birth to young, and those young are able to survive within a very short amount of time. They can walk very quickly. They can eat normal food. Think about human babies. We are so bad at surviving as babies. Even as like a two-year-old, how are you going to survive unless you're cared for diligently? You can't just leave the kid out in a pile of snow like a, like a bear cub right? That'll get, that kid will get frostbite. You, you can't have the kid out in the hot sun in an equator climate. The, the kid will die of heat exhaustion, right? So uh, these are thoughts that I have. <laughs> Maybe they don't, they don't hold water to a, a really robust evolutionary apologist, uh, but you know, I'd, I'd love to see somebody interact with it a little bit and see some reasoning that makes a little more sense. Now, when it comes to allegorical readings of Genesis, I did want to comment on this as well. The Church Fathers, Sam is very right to say, the Church Fathers use allegory extensively. That is true. As many of you probably know, I have a master's degree in Church history and, you know, have read many, many pages of Church Fathers over the years. And I took a whole class just on Origen, and he's really uh, the... I want to say pioneer, but he's definitely the one that brought allegorical reading to a systematized strategy. Origen and, and those who were before him who use allegory, they often do something differently than what we see in the Bible. Now, Sam had pointed out that Paul allegorized. That's true. Paul did allegorize, uh, what was it, uh, Hagar and Mount Sinai and over against Sarah and Mount Zion, right? But he in Paul's allegory, he doesn't discount the literal. He's using it as an allegory for something else, sure, but he does actually believe in a historical Hagar and a historical Sarah. So it's really not fair to say, well, Paul allegorized, therefore it's okay to say there wasn't a historical Adam. Well, I think Paul pretty much believed in a historical Adam if I'm reading Romans 5 correctly and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you read Origen carefully, he does the same. Origen, I think, is wrong about most things, just for the record. But <laughs> he does typically affirm the literal truth, which he calls the body or the surface of Scripture. And then he penetrates beneath the body to the soul, and then sometimes even goes to the spirit of Scripture, which is the pinnacle of his hermeneutical system, which you can read in his book four of De Principis uh, on first principles. And uh, you can read all about it there. Yeah, I think Origen probably did believe in Adam and Eve as historical people. I, I don't know. I'd have to look at the quotes on that very specific thing. As far as later allegorists like Augustine, usually everyone goes to Augustine to make the point. I know Tremper Longman does. Uh, he's one of the BioLogos guys uh, associated with Francis Collins. And uh, they'll say, oh, well, or Augustine was an allegorist. Therefore, it's okay to allegorize Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I think Augustine is pretty much wrong about everything he ever said. Okay, that's 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 too harsh. That's too harsh. The Confessions was good. I, I will give, well, it, before he got to philosophizing, at least. His philosophy at the end of Confessions is not that good, in my opinion. But uh, Augustine is the guy who drew upon his teacher, Ambrose, who was a, a Roman procurator, to develop just war theory. Augustine is the guy who argued strongly against the kingdom of God on earth and uh, instead wanted everyone to believe in going to heaven. Augustine is the guy who introduced the idea of predestination, that we were all predestined, that 
God is the only one who acts in salvation. A lot of the a lot of the ideas that Calvin later systematized are all there in Augustine. Augustine is the guy who first started persecuting other Christians, the Donatists in Africa. You know, so I I don't think he's a very good source. And I know he allegorized too. And you, you know why ancient people allegorized? They allegorized originally because they were reading Homer and they're reading about the different things that Homer did. And they're just like, you know, we know this is like the pinnacle of, of Greek language and he was a genius because he's, you know, an ancient source and, and all this. But like, there are some things in here that are just a little wacky based on our current scientific knowledge. So they started allegorizing Homer. And so when somebody who is trained in, to allegorize anyhow becomes a Christian, guess what they do? They bring their bad philosophy to scripture and they start allegorizing all over the place. Anytime something seems, quote unquote, unworthy of God, they're going to allegorize. But here's the problem. What is the signal? How do you know what to allegorize and what not to allegorize? You are the signal. Your sensibilities. This is, this is no different than progressive Christianity today, if you really think about it. Progressive Christianity says there's no way that God would be against homosexual marriage. Therefore, when we read the prohibitions against same-sex sexual acts, we must understand them in a metaphorical way or in a very isolated way because there's no way that God would be against monogamous, loving, same-sex couples. Or we could talk about the subject of trans and the progressive position on that over against Genesis, right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's the idea of a subjective authority that the authority lies within me or within my culture to decide what parts of the Bible should be taken at face value and what parts of the Bible should be allegorized away. And, uh, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not accusing Sam of doing any of this. I uh, love Sam. He's a great guy. I really respect him. I listen to his podcast. It's very good. You should listen to it, too. It's called Transfigured. He's got all kinds of great scholars on there and interesting material. I'm just saying that we have to be careful looking to the church fathers and saying, oh, well, they allegorize, so therefore it's fine for us to do it too. I think they were wrong to allegorize in almost every case where they did develop allegory. I much more respect the Jewish strain of Christianity that survived without allegory, was able to read scripture well. And, and this moves us to the last subject that I want to bring up, point number six here, which is evolution undermines the idea of a fall. And uh, I've written a lot about sin. I've got a whole series on, on it under articles of, on the website if you want to take a look at it, restitudio.org, and take a look at articles, and then it's under short articles. But I'm quite convinced that there is such a thing as a fall and that our nature is corrupted as a result of it. Humans are corrupted as a result of the fall, not just biologically, that we are also morally uh, fallen. I don't believe we're so fallen that we can't not sin. In other words, I think we can do righteous things. I think a non-Christian can actually do something good without getting anything out of it or having corrupted motives. Um, but I do believe that we are fallen in such, to such a degree that sin is inevitable for all of us if we, if we live long enough. Obviously, if you die as a baby, you can die without sinning. On evolution, you kind of have everything backwards, right? So with a more traditional reading of Genesis and say like Romans 6.23, it says wages of sin is death, right? Obviously, Adam's in the background there. He had just talked about him in chapter 5 of Romans. 
So you have an idyllic world. It doesn't have to be a perfect world. I think Mike Heiser's right about that, that Eden itself was like a bubble of order in the midst of disorder and chaos. And that in that garden, conditions were well-suited and enough to be considered paradise, right? But the Bible doesn't comment on what's outside of that. So leaving that to the side, whether you agree with me on that or not, I do believe that there was a paradise in the beginning. And because of rebellion and people's decision to go against what God says, which is the definition of sin, that the fall occurred and corrupted humanity and corrupted our world and possibly even the spiritual realm. If if that is when the fall occurred for them, uh, I don't have a horse in that race. And our world is sort of degenerating from that original to today, such that lifespans have shortened over time, at least until the advent of technology and good waste disposal and food production, right? Seems like we're on an upswing right now as a species, which I think is awesome. But generally, over the, over the long haul, things have been getting worse. We can certainly say that there are a lot of things that are getting worse century by century that, that weren't there before. Now, on evolution, though, it's the exact opposite. In the beginning, it was a totally chaotic world, no order whatsoever. And slowly over time, life self-assembled and then replicated, increased in complexity until we get to humans as the pinnacle of the tree of life. Okay, the, the final branch of the tree of life, at least so far. And so the idea is that things are getting better biologically over time rather than things are getting worse. And I see a real contrast there with Scripture. And the, the other scriptural problem, I'll just throw it in here. I, I don't want to get into it in depth, but it, it relates. It's, it's right there on this whole subject is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, which says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So uh, the idea here is that Adam is this archetype, but he's also historical. And I don't think there's a problem with saying both and to that. So those are some of the issues I have with evolution. Once again, lack of positive evidence for the belief. Number two, problem of the first life. Number three, mutations as a mechanism for building complexity. Uh, number four, humans as ill-adapted for survival. Number five, allegorical readings of Genesis are ad hoc. They're not biblically based. They're just sort of made up on the spot by the person's subjective intuitions. And number six, evolution undermines the fall. So again, I, I feel about evolution pretty much how I feel about the Trinity. I want to believe in it. I really do. Well, Sean, why do you want to believe in the Trinity? Why do you want to believe in evolution? Because they're popular beliefs that most people hold. And I don't want to be some knucklehead, you know, with a stained t-shirt in the basement coming up with conspiracy theories. Like, you know, if it's true, I want to believe in it. Um, and it would be one less thing to worry about. But look, I just don't have enough faith to believe in the Trinity. I don't. I've looked at all the evidence for it. It just seems really thin. It seems like we have to just assume this belief is true. We just have to trust 
these misguided church fathers who concocted the idea three centuries after Christ that they got it right, and then read everything in light of that. It's just like the, the idea of evolution. I have to accept the dogma that this is how everything really works. I have to swallow that, and then I can interpret everything in light of it. Well, I don't know. I just don't have enough faith, I guess, to to go in on those ideas at this time. I want I want to remain open on those things and, and on everything. I mean, that's the whole idea. That's the slogan, people. The truth has nothing to fear. If it's true, I want to believe in it. And having said that, it's not like I want to change my beliefs all the time either. <laughs> okay? I'm, I, I'm quite happy to keep my beliefs the same. But I, I want to move ever closer to the truth because I believe that all truth is God's truth. Well, that's enough for today. I don't usually monologue on these podcasts, but I had a few things I wanted to say. Next week, we'll be back with Barlow's next episode of Scripture and Science, and we'll look at geology. Until then, be a good Berean. Remember, they didn't just reject Paul because he was teaching some strange new idea about this Jesus of Nazareth. No, they checked the scriptures to see if it was true. Just like 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do that at restitutio.org. I'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.